Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. gentlemen of the listening audience. My name is Maurice Selby and you are listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem and the Health in Harlem podcast. And ladies and gentlemen, just want to let you know that uh, we talk about exercise as medicine here on Health in Harlem almost each and every week, right? There's almost not a segment that goes by where we do not mention sort of the the real benefits that one can have from just being active. And man, I just want to <laughs> drive home um, that message um, again and reinforce that um, I had a good workout today, as you can probably tell just from the start of this show. So I wanted to talk about that, man, because it's so important. And the reason why I bring it up is just because of the difference that I notice in myself, my attitude, my energy, um, just in terms of, right, being able to get up and go and do what I need to do. Um, And I'm talking about everything from recording this show to going to get my daughter, right, bringing her back and forth to school and things for work and even just interactions with my family and friends, um, just being present and really getting the most out of life. What I've found is that really being active, right? And being active and getting that active lifestyle, getting that workout in, that really just allows me to do everything to the fullest, essentially. And it doesn't have to be anything, right? But when you think about uh, workouts, <laughs> I think I want to really just take the focus off of that term, because I think when we when we think about that term, when we talk about being active, right? The automatic thought is, you have to work out. You have to go to the gym. You have to get on your your cycling bike or whatever Peloton or any of these other uh, devices in your household, rowing machines, whatever treadmill um, or even hit the pavement and run outdoors. But it does not have to be that, ladies and gentlemen. It could be right. Um, <laughs> difficult here um, in Georgia, of course, um, depending on where you are, but walking to go and get your child from school, right? Rather than driving there, um, if it is a distance that is reasonable for you to walk and get them, you can achieve real benefits from that, real lasting benefits, not only as we said in the short term, but also 
uh, in the long term. And it could just be dancing. <laughs> there was a, a day a few days ago where I was just being silly uh, with my daughters in the house and just dancing. Right. Put on Spotify and we found a, a, a nice playlist and I was just being silly with them, but um, got my heart rate going and just um, dancing with them. And that was brief. Right. Just, you know, 10, 15 minutes of me being silly with them and dancing. And I remember initially when I came upstairs, I had been doing some work um, down in our little basement office and came up and was just tired like man you know I'm <laughs> tired from working so hard uh, but then decided to just hang out with them for that brief time and just from moving around being silly dancing and playing with them that little bit of activity was enough to boost right not only my heart rate and get my blood flowing but I felt so much better after that that brief quote-unquote workout right I definitely felt myself breathing a little bit faster um, got my heart rate up, but that was invigorating, ladies and gentlemen. And so just want to get it out there. Exercise as medicine. We say this each and every week on Health in Harlem, just really stressing the importance of that. And as you recall, probably if you've been listening to this program for some time, we had Dr. Leonard Kaminsky. He is a distinguished professor at Ball State University, the John and Janice Fisher Distinguished Professor of Wellness in the School of Kinesiology at Ball State. And he laid it out for us, right? Just the importance um, in terms of, right, the short-term benefits of exercise. We see that sort of boost, right, in our, um, everything in, in terms of our uh, mental well-being. We see it um, in our ability to move and to stay flexible, to be able to accomplish our day-to-day -day goals and activities. But then in the long-term, especially when we talk about cardiovascular health. Um, we talk about preventing things like hypertension, things like diabetes, metabolic syndromes, strokes, you name it, almost everything, even certain cancers, there are real benefits to just being up and active. And so I just wanted to start the program just to really hammer that home as to how important that is. And it can be anything, even just going out for a nice brisk walk, um, being out there with your family, um, would be even better um, having some social interaction. Uh, just really, let's try to get that done, ladies and gentlemen, and really make that a priority in life. And so with that said, we're going to move on and just briefly got to get out there that we need to get vaccinated, ladies and gentlemen, against COVID-19 if you have not done so already. And so this is probably a stronger tone that you've heard most recently uh, from myself on health in Harlem. You know, in the past, I've definitely said that I think this is and it is it's a, a kind of a personal choice, right, to accept the vaccine or not. Um, one thing that we've always said on this program is to make sure that you are making this decision based on real information. There is a lot of misinformation out there, a lot of disinformation and Considering everything that's going on, we need to make sure that we are making this decision based on facts, ladies and gentlemen. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that the facts right now out there, um, there are individuals that are having complications from illness with SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, right? When we talk about what has happened recently in the last few weeks in hospitals around the country and especially where I'm practicing uh, right now 
down south, we are seeing primarily the vast majority of individuals coming in, ladies and gentlemen, that I see day to day that are admitted to the hospital with complications, everything from low oxygen uh, saturations or low oxygen in the blood to having pneumonia to having kidney injury um, and other complications and even dying from COVID-19. The vast majority, and we're talking, I have not seen um, both in my hospital, but also in every research study I've read, all of the newspapers I've read, all of the news reports, broadcasts, radio programs, podcasts, you name it, even just talking to other providers, other healthcare providers in other health systems and hospitals, clinics, they are seeing complications amongst unvaccinated individuals. And so one fact is that, and I have to put this out there, the vaccine works. There have been you know, many things that I've been seeing online, especially on social media, um, sort of discounting that fact. And I do have to say it's a fact right now because of what I see before me and what I see all around me. Um, and what we see really all around us, um, regardless of the source, the vast majority of people, and I'm talking in excess of 90% everywhere cited, um, and even in some places, right, more than 95% of those hospitalized and having problems related to this disease, they are unvaccinated. Those are the facts, ladies and gentlemen. That is a fact at this point. Now, there's different stuff coming out. We have some research studies coming in from Israel talking about individuals that have been infected with COVID-19 and right them having some uh, immunity from antibodies that they've generated from that infection. There's some literature showing that, right, these individuals have um, not only good protection, but pretty long term protection. There was even uh, some preprint stuff and be mindful. We got to be careful with these sort of preprint um, publications, right? Um, these preprint servers. And these are things that have not been peer reviewed yet. Um, but some preprints coming out showing that, right, some sometimes there are individuals that have been infected that seem to have superior immunity um, to those that had just been vaccinated and never had a native COVID-19 infection. But I'll tell you, that really doesn't make a case in terms of not getting vaccinated against COVID-19. And I'll tell you why. Uh, one is that, I mean, really, the fact remains that un unvaccinated individuals are still at risk, right? So yes, if you had COVID-19, you probably have some protection, right? If you've, especially if you had symptoms or even unfortunately had complications related to that, to that uh, illness, but survived, right? You probably have some antibodies that can protect you to a certain degree from uh, future uh, exposure to SARS-CoV-2 and hopefully prevent you from developing COVID-19 again, the actual clinical syndrome, right? with symptoms and complications. But then you have these unvaccinated folks and the fact still remains that those individuals do not have protection, right, against developing COVID-19. And so the, the, the argument still holds, if you're not vaccinated, you should get vaccinated to be protected against this illness, right? But another thing that we've learned, um, and this has been consist consistently shown is that if you did have COVID-19 previously and right, then you have antibodies, right? You have some protection against the illness. That is great, right? That is a great thing. But also 
one thing that's been consistently shown is that if you are vaccinated, meaning you receive either the mRNA vaccines, you receive um, the adenoviral vector vaccine, right? The Johnson and Johnson vaccine, whatever you get another vaccine on top of having had COVID-19, right? You get vaccinated after you clear that illness. Um, what has been shown is that you have an e even more vigorous response, right? You have a, a, a bigger immune response after having been vaccinated and having had COVID-19. And so with that said, again, the argument is you should still get vaccinated. Even if you had COVID-19, yes, you have some protection, but that protection can be enhanced by getting vaccinated, right? You can have even more protection and not worry um, or at least have a much lower likelihood of having COVID-19 again, right? And having complications related to this illness because, right, there are individuals out there that have had COVID, right? And they were symptomatic. They might've even had severe enough illness to be hospitalized. And then there are individuals that not only had it once, but they got it again um, and, and maybe had complications again. There are cases like that, ladies and gentlemen. There are some individuals that had it mild the first time and Everything was fine afterwards. They recovered fully, but then they got it again and had complications, right? So there are individuals that still, um, unfortunately, get sick again. Uh, sometimes it is worse, right? And with the vaccine, on top of any native immunity that you might have uh, achieved after an initial infection with COVID-19, you have an even bigger boost, right, with the vaccine, and so with that said, I mean, even with, with this information coming out, the I, I strongly urge everyone, right, if you have not been vaccinated um, and if you don't have any clear contraindication, meaning any clear reasons, right, medical reasons not to be vaccinated, um, you should get vaccinated. OK, and that's that's the strongest I've been in that recommendation. You know, I've always said just sort of weigh the information and do your own risk benefit analysis and come to your own conclusion. Um, but this is Dr. Maurice Selby, right? If you were my patient in front of me, right, and you told me you were not vaccinated um, against COVID-19, you asked for my opinion or my recommendations on this intervention, I would tell you um, in person to get vaccinated, that that would be the safest thing for you, especially if you're older, um, especially if you have medical problems, and even for those without medical problems or risk factors that predispose them for more to more severe disease or severe complications from COVID, um, I can tell you firsthand that there are individuals in their 20s, 30s, 40s, um, individuals that right do all of the things that I talked about in the first portion of this show. They go and work out regularly. They don't smoke. They eat healthily. They do everything right with, with what we traditionally associate with living a healthy life and a healthy lifestyle, they do those things. And unfortunately, I've seen patients like that that still have complications from COVID-19 and they are unvaccinated individuals. And so I can't get any stronger in this recommendation, um, but you really should strongly consider getting vaccinated against COVID-19. And I'll leave it at that. We're going to move on at this point. What I will say also is that if you have any questions, comments or concerns, you can always hit up Mo Selb, Dr. Mo Selb 
on Instagram. You can leave your questions for me there. You can find me on Facebook, Moselb, that's M-O-E-S-E-L-B, right? Uh, you can also hit us up on Health in Harlem, and we'll be glad to really talk about this with you. Um, as we say, this is, <laughs> don't want to be a talking ahead on this program. I really want to engage you all. And so if you have questions, if you have comments, concerns, hit us up. We give you that you know, invitation each and every week on this program. And so if you have questions about that, definitely hit us up. And with that said, I'm going to get into our main topic um, this evening, which is suicide prevention. Now, it is National Suicide Prevention Month, and we are actually coming upon National Suicide Prevention Week, right? From Sunday, September 5th through Saturday, September 11th, it will be National Suicide Prevention Week. And this is a, a really huge topic, ladies and gentlemen, because of everything that's happened up to this point with the pandemic. I mean, even before the pandemic, when we talk about suicide, we're talking about a major problem in this country and around the world. More than 800,000 people die each and every year from suicide. And it is about 20 times more that actually attempt suicide. And this was prior to the pandemic, right? And now with the pandemic itself, the fear and uncertainty that comes with that, right? That all of us have experienced for the last 18 months, the economic fallout, right? The job losses, the difficulty that individuals have encountered doing things like paying their rent, right? Having groceries, being able to um, even just enjoy life in various ways. Can't go to the movies, can't go out and engage one another, right? Because of social distancing rules, and shutdowns of businesses and also just the isolation that comes from all of that we have seen a spike in the number of individuals having difficulties especially when we talk about emotional disturbances like depression when we talk about suicide itself the thought of suicide and even when it comes to the actual committing of suicide we've seen increases now, one thing that's been a rather good thing is that from the start of this pandemic to now, people have become increasingly comfortable talking about their experiences, right, with their mental health, the difficulties that they're encountering, um, especially when we talk about sadness and even when we talk about depression, we talk about hopelessness. People have been more vocal about that. But when it comes to the actual topic of suicide, when it comes to talking about these emotions, right? And as we said, that sense of hopelessness, but then talking about what might come from that or what might be uh, an ultimate complication or result of that, right? In suicide is still scary for a lot of us. It's scary even for me as a medical professional, right? That in the emergency department takes care of individuals coming in with emotional uh, disturbances, anxiety, um, and just difficulty um, dealing with things that are happening around them. It's difficult even for me to broach that topic, but it's something that we really need to do, ladies and gentlemen, both in thinking about ourselves and how we are uh, dealing with things during this time, 
but also right when we engage others because there are things that we can do to prevent suicide and that's really the the focus just having an awareness that this is of course as we we all know i think we're all aware of this being a very big problem but also right i think there is hope in that there is a good amount that can be done to prevent this and so that's what we're going to do is we're going to talk about not only raising awareness about suicide but also we're going to talk about the risk factors we're going to talk about how to recognize signs right of an individual that might be at risk for committing suicide and then we're going to talk about prevention and ultimately some resources that can that we can all use in addressing this problem and so just just putting this into right scope or putting this into perspective suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States and it has been so for years actually in 2019 we're talking 47,511 deaths of Americans by suicide in 2019 there were an estimated 1.3 million suicide attempts and this is all coming from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention their data and statistics fatal injury report from 2019 and so a major problem um, definitely we've seen the pandemic exacerbate this issue and even if we talk about right one thing that's been sort of very talked about recently is the rise in overdose deaths um, in this country and while there are probably the majority of those deaths those overdose deaths were accidental there's a large chunk of people right ladies and gentlemen that might be engaging in such behaviors using these substances because they are experiencing pain they are experiencing anxiety they are experiencing emotional difficulty depression and unfortunately because of everything that's happening the lack of support systems that they probably previously had right to avoid use of those substances and when we talk about exclusively when we talk about especially suicide right the sort of intentional uh, self-harm it's the same thing in that there's this lack of support that exacerbates this issue and so not to uh, sort of lump right that that uh, issue with uh, overdoses but I'm just say, making a case that there's a lot of pain out there and we really need to have our antennas up for ourselves right do an individual self-check but also for those out of concern for those around us that are in our inner circles our family people that we live with people that we work with right we are in this together and really that is going to be one of the, the ultimate cases that I'll be making is that we need to look out for one another when we talk about suicide prevention. And so with that said, let's just get into recognition and awareness, because that is going to be the key when we talk about preventing individuals from dying from suicide. We know that there are risk factors associated with suicide or suicidal behavior, even suicidal ideation or thinking about suicide. There are risk factors. And just as we look for risk factors, right, for individuals developing cardiovascular disease, right, individuals with hypertension, diabetes, obesity, 
uh, let's say when we talk about diseases like cancer risks, right? Family history, individuals that had a relative, especially a first degree relative, whether it's a parent or a sibling, that they had that in their families, right? Colon cancer, let's say, then that person is at increased risk for developing colon cancer, right? It's a risk factor. And so we look at those individuals and treat them differently. So for instance, in my case, right at 36 years of age, I had a colonoscopy done. Why? Because Maurice Donovan Selby has a history of colon cancer in his family. And so my risk is increased in comparison to the rest of the population. And so for me, right, I had an early colonoscopy because I'm at an increased risk. Uh, just as an individual with high blood pressure and diabetes, if you come in complaining of chest pain to my emergency department, well, one of the things that I need to think about is your heart, right? Are you having a heart attack or is there a blockage of one of your coronary arteries, the arteries that supply blood to your heart? I have to think about that. Those are risk factors that increase the probability of a person having heart disease, right? Hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, a smoker of cigarettes. Those are risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And so it's similar when we talk about suicide, when we talk about prevention of suicide, we need to be mindful of the risk factors for this problem. And so if we if we just took, let's say, gender, right, um, we look at risk for various diseases based on uh, gender, right, with other syndromes, other medical problems, well, it's similar with suicide prevention. And one fact that we need to be mindful of is that men died by suicide 3.54 times more than women. And one uh, thing of note is that white males accounted for nearly 70% of completed suicide deaths in 2017. And the rate of suicide is highest among middle-aged white men, right? And is second highest amongst Native Americans and Alaskan natives. Now, are we saying that every middle-aged white male, right, is at risk for suicide? Not necessarily, but it's something that we, especially as we go forward talking about some other risk factors, we need to be mindful. We need to be aware that in certain groups, there might be an increased risk of suicidal behavior. And definitely this factors into us actually preventing, right, this from happening. Now, one thing I do want to say, right, um, just uh, so everybody out there is on the same page, I don't want to single out any one group, right? The rates of suicide do differ based on gender, race, socioeconomic status, and ethnicity, but it occurs in all demographic groups, right? So um, just something to be mindful of. This can happen with anyone, right? And that's why it's so important that we really identify these risk factors and look for warning signs when we talk about the prevention of suicide. And so let's just get into those risk factors. This is according to the CDC, right? Both risk factors and actually some preventive or protect, protective factors. Um, there are many factors that contribute to suicide risk. And a combination of situations could lead someone to consider suicide, right? But risk factors increase the possibility, right? The more risk factors present, the more likely it is that someone might um, experience this, whether it is thinking about suicide, whether it is um, actually engaging in suicidal behavior or completing the act of killing themselves. 
And so when we talk about individual risk factors, let's focus on the individual. We already talked about, right, the male-female discrepancy, right? Males being more prone to um, suicide. When we talk about additional individual risk factors, one thing that really, right, this is a big thing that we need to understand. Previous suicide attempt, major risk factor for an individual individual actually going on to commit suicide. So a person with a previous suicide attempt, automatically that person um, is at higher risk of suicide. Mental illness, especially when we talk about emotional disturbances like depression, right? Major depressive disorder. Um, this is a major risk factor for suicide. Social isolation, which we've experienced <laughs> to a large degree, especially uh, with the pandemic, right? Another major risk factor. Financial problems, impulsivity or aggressive tendency, tendencies, job problems or loss, legal problems and even criminal problems. Uh, another thing is serious illness, and especially when we talk about um, older individuals, older populations, the elderly, um, some of the comorbid comorbid illnesses that can come with that, the debilitating illnesses that can come uh, with older age, um, even in younger age, right? If we talk about, let's talk about COVID-19 and why I'm so passionate about individuals being vaccinated against that illness, right, is because people have complications. Not everybody dies from COVID. There are survivors, but there are survivors that have prolonged problems, right, from that illness, debilitating problems. They can't go back to work. They have long hauler syndrome. They have uh, psychiatric, neuropsychiatric manifestations or sequelae or complications from having had COVID-19, right? And a serious illness like that, debilitating illness like that, especially when we talk about uh, job loss, uh, missed social opportunities, not being like one's previous self, that all of those things can increase the risk of an individual um, engaging in suicidal behavior or committing suicide, right? So serious illness um, is something that we really need to look at as a serious risk factor for suicide. And then, of course, substance use disorders can definitely increase one's risk of suicide. And so that's the individual, right? If risk factors for suicide. But now let's look at relationships, right? Because how we interact with one another, how we interact with our community, the world around us can also increase one's risk of suicide. And so adverse childhood experiences such as child abuse, neglect, um, individuals even much later in life as adults, right, can have difficulties relating to previous trauma. And so that is one thing that we need to be mindful of when we talk about suicide prevention, when we talk about suicide risk. Bullying, um, this is especially, right, a problem Got a lot of media attention in the last few years. Bullying, especially on social media. Uh, one thing that um, we really learned, right, according to the Youth Behaviors Survey in 2017, 7.4% of youth in grades 9 through 12 reported that they had made at least one suicide attempt in the past 12 months. And female students, and this is why, right, we said we need to be cognizant 
of different populations and that this can happen um, amongst different groups. And we see different rates amongst different groups because in younger populations, female students attempted suicide nearly twice as often as males, right? 9.3% versus 5.1%. And black students in grades nine through 12 reported the highest rate of attempts in the past 12 months at just under 10%, right? So we're talking one, one in 10, unfortunately, um, individuals contemplating or attempting suicide, especially amongst black students, right? Um, so being mindful of age groups, the differences, as we said, right? Middle-aged white men having higher rates of suicide in comparison to females, right? 3.5% uh, greater likelihood of suicide. But in younger populations, we see a shift in that females, right? Having more suicide attempts, um, especially in this very vulnerable age group, grades nine through 12, um, a total reversal. So being mindful of what is happening um, at different age groups, right? We need to understand that as we really try to understand these risk factors for suicide. Additional relationship factors, family history of suicide can increase one's risk, um, especially when we talk about the term, the Werther effect. This was named after the main character in Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's novel, The Sorrows of Young Werther, right? It was coined to describe the phenomenon of copycat suicides. Um, actually, probably many people heard the controversy with the show 13 Reasons Why, right? And whether or not that show would spur copycat suicides in younger individuals and in teenagers. Um, and there have been patterns, and especially um, out in Palo Alto, California, with a number of suicides amongst younger individuals, teenagers, right? Um, and, and sort of a very close time course of multiple suicides in the same high school um, and even within the same district, they saw this increase, right? And, and one of the, the thoughts was that this was actually the Werther effect in which we have these copycat suicides from uh, individuals sort of witnessing hap this happening um, around them. And so family history is a big deal because having knowledge of that, right? A person whose family member, especially a first degree relative that uh, committed suicide in times of emotional distress, in times of despair, where support uh, services or support resources, right, are not available, a person with a family history of suicide is at an increased risk of harming themselves. So another thing to just be mindful of in dealing with this. So some other relationship risk factors relationship problems such as a recent breakup, a divorce, domestic violence, right, or loss uh, of a loved one, that can increase one's risk of suicidal behavior or suicide. And finally, sexual violence. Um, I guess we can put this under the umbrella of domestic violence, but sexual violence in itself can actually increase suicidal ideation, suicidal behavior. And so uh, let's look at some community risk factors as well. Barriers to health care. And we've seen this with the pandemic. Individuals 
especially in moments of crisis, especially individuals that have had emotional uh, problems like major depressive disorder, and maybe they were being treated, right? Um, actually doing well in dealing with that, uh, but barriers to healthcare when the individuals can't get the care that they need for these problems, they are at an increased risk of suicide. So communities where they cannot get those services or they're not available, or in this case with the pandemic, right, which was widely the problem, um, just not being able to access professionals, not being able to access their usual support resources, um, that increases the risk of suicide. Cultural and religious beliefs, such as a belief that suicide is a noble resolution of a personal problem, um, can be a, a risk factor. And suicide cluster in a community, um, as we mentioned, right, um, with what we saw in Palo Alto, um, the Werther effect, um, even on media and what is happening around us, right? And that's why that was such a big deal, such a controversy um, as far as 13 Reasons Why, right? That program is that just hearing about suicide or hearing about a suicide attempt or a completion of suicide can increase one's risk, especially in those moments of despair and hopelessness. And one last thing I want to throw in there as far as a risk factor is having access to firearms. And aside from a major, one of the major right risk factors being a previous suicide attempt, access to firearms is something that we should really, really take note of, right? When we are thinking about a person that we are worried about because the fact remains that firearms are involved in 50% of suicide deaths. And so that's it, ladies and gentlemen, those are major risk factors, right? And the next thing that we need to focus on are the signs, right? Suicide warning signs. So let's say, let's go back to the analogy of being in the ER with Maurice Selby, MD, and we have that chest pain patient and they have the risk factors, right? They have uh, the diabetes, they have the hypertension and they're here with chest pain. And I'm thinking, man, is this a heart attack, right? Um, so there are warning signs, right? There are signs that I'm looking for on examining that person to see if it is their heart that is having difficulty. I can um, talk to them about their symptoms, right? What the chest pain is like, what it feels like to them, where it is moving, if it's moving at all to any other parts of the chest. Is it going into their arms? Is it going into their neck or jaw? Um, is it associated with nausea, vomiting, or shortness of breath? Does the pain get worse when you're walking around, right, or exerting yourself in any way? Or do you feel more breathless when that's happening? Those point to a heart problem, right, or a heart attack. Um, the person has the risk factors. Maybe they're even a smoker on top of that, right? And now I'm looking for signs and symptoms that increase the probability of that disease so that I know how to evaluate that patient further and ultimately how to treat them, right? Well, it's the, the same thing when we talk about suicide prevention in that we have the risk factors, right? That can help us understand who is at an increased risk of carrying out suicide, but then looking for the warning signs, right? So now we have a person before us, um, maybe it's even ourselves, right? Um, which can be very difficult to see, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, and I'll explain why. Um, but especially, this is why I said we are in this together. 
And if anything, we are all on the front lines when it comes to suicide prevention because it is going to be one another, right? Looking out for one another that gets an individual the help that they need in that time of crisis, right? It is going to be one of us in our community, in our families, right? That can be the difference between life and death when it comes to suicide. Now, unfortunately, there are, right, signs that are easy to miss, right? And there's no one sign or one thing that tells us, right, that a person is going to engage in a suicidal behavior or commit suicide. <clears throat> Even people close to the person that are, are feeling suicidal might not realize how deeply hopeless right, that person might feel. But being on the lookout for the following signs can really help in looking out for one another, right, in identifying that individual that not only has the risk factors, but now they're at a high chance of harming themselves because they are exhibiting certain signs that we can see, right? Just like with that chest pain, they have the risk factors, the diabetes, the hypertension, their cholesterol is through the roof, they smoke cigarettes, um, right? And and now they have on an ultrasound or an echocardiogram of their heart, I see an area that's not moving well. Well, guess what? That raises, right, the probability in my head. They have an EKG that shows, right, evidence of a heart attack or even a, an area of the heart that's not getting enough blood, right? That in my mind, as their physician, this is a heart attack until proven otherwise, right? Well, the same thing when it comes to suicide prevention, these risk factors coupled with <clears throat> signs can increase the chances that a person is having difficulty and might be at risk. And so we're going to look out for any unusual changes in behavior. And this is common for a person that is suicidal, right? But it can be easily overlooked because the changes might not seem related to depression or hopelessness. Um, and they might seem just maybe withdrawn for a period or just acting strangely. Um, and so it could be difficult to spot, but any unusual changes in behavior, that person or kid that goes running right every day and, and exercises or they go to practice and they're, they're very engaged with their friends, right? Or an activity that that person likes and enjoys and does regularly, all of a sudden they're not doing that. They're not showing up, right? They are not down to chill with you um, to watch the upcoming football season, right, on Sundays. Uh, a change in behavior, we need to think, right, especially if that person has the risk factors that we mentioned. They lost a loved one. They lost a job. They are having financial difficulty. Maybe they have a new diagnosis of an illness, right? This change in behavior, drastic change in behavior coupled with those risk factors, we need to think, is this person at risk for suicide? Changes in sleeping patterns. A shift in someone's and how someone sleeps can be a sign of depression. Either they are, right, the this most active person in the world, involved in everything, very productive, um, usually very, you know, bright and out there and engaging and um, extrovert. Well, if this person is laying in bed all day, right, sleeping 12 hours a day, 16 hours a day, not getting out of bed, um, or on the other hand, just very erratic, not sleeping at all or sleeping for very brief periods when this person normally was someone that got six to eight hours regularly as recommended. Right. Um, we need to be on the lookout for this person. 
right? Um, especially insomnia. When we talk about those sleeping difficulties, um, especially in the context of the risk factors we've talked about, um, unusual changes of in behavior, and this person is not sleeping or sleeping too much, we need to think about suicide. Access to lethal means, um, right? A, a person that maybe has these risk factors and they're not sleeping well and changes in behavior, all of a sudden this pers person purchases a firearm, right? And never owned one before. Um, we need to be on the lookout for that individual. We need to um, think about, is this person at risk for harming themselves? Emotional distance. Someone who is feeling suicidal might become detached, right? From life in general, from other people, from typical activities, from work. Um, they essentially become so emotionally distant and looking out for that, that is another big sign that we need to be mindful of. And then finally, physical pain, physical pain. And, and this is something that can definitely be overlooked because when we talk about um, emotional pain, I think everybody makes that connection between emotional pain, emotional difficulty and suicide. But physical pain, ladies and gentlemen, especially individual with chronic pain syndromes, right? Physical pain and discomfort are often overlooked, and these can be symptoms of depression, and they can also be signs of a person at risk of suicide. And so someone you know, they complain of, you know, any type of pain, headaches, they're having digestive issues, just general body pain, in addition to some of the other signs that we talked about, uh, the emotional distance, the access to lethal means, uh, we talked about the sleeping pattern changes, the unusual changes in behavior, and also those risk factors. Somebody experiencing all of these with a family history of suicide or having had a previous suicide attempt or any of those other risk factors, this person we need to really be mindful of and think that that person might be at risk for harming themselves. Okay, so those are the risk factors and the signs that we need to be on the lookout for. And before we move on, I just want to say that this is not right for everyone and, and different groups might not manifest all of these signs, right? And symptoms that we just spoke about. Um, but looking for some other behaviors, right? Increased use of alcohol or drugs, individuals researching ways of harming themselves. Um, these can also point toward a person that is at significant risk from hurting themselves. But uh, I just want to qu quote Dr. Dr. Michael Miller. He's an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And essentially he said that many people, right, this is quote, many people who commit suicide do so without letting on, they are thinking about it or planning it. The paradox is that people that are most intent on committing suicide know that they have to keep their plans to themselves if they are to carry out the act. Thus, the people most in need of help may be the toughest to save, right? But that's where we all come in, in, in spotting this, right? Really being on the lookout for this as a possibility in those around us, in those that are closest to us, um, because we're all at risk, ladies and gentlemen, right? There's no one person or group that is at the highest risk. We need to be on the lookout for one another, um, so that we don't miss this. And this is preventable. And so that's the next thing we need to get into before we wrap up is what to do. Now, one thing 
that has been a common belief. And this is something that I've even believed um, was that right. Engaging that person and really asking them, right. Being upfront with this individual, expressing concern based on what we talked about, the risk factors, they lost a job. They have a new diagnosis of an illness. You notice they're not sleeping well or eating well or not behaving like themselves. Maybe they've even purchased fire. You have to ask that individual. You have to engage them. And this is the time where I say, I've always been one right, right, uh, raised, right? Where it's like nosiness is just, you know, goodness, don't be nosy. Keep your, yourself out of other people's business. Um, that is something I always hear. Um, but this is a time where you need to be nosy. You need to be in this person's business especially if it's your loved one, especially if somebody you work with, you're concerned about them, you notice these signs, now's the time, right, to get into their business. And I'm not saying you gotta ask them everything about what's going on, but the key questions that you must get to with them is, hey, are, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Have you been thinking about killing yourself? Now, this is where the awkwardness comes in, right? Because as we said at the outset, it's very difficult to bring up. We've been talking about our emotions for the last 18 months, the difficulty that people are experiencing, the despair, the hopelessness. But one thing that has been still difficult to bring up is suicide, right? And asking an individual if they are are thinking about hurting themselves, even if they're just thinking about it, right? You have to ask that question. And it, for a long time, it was thought that, hey, by asking that question, maybe you'll put it in their head that that's an option for them. But the research shows otherwise, right? That when you ask that question, you are not predisposing that person to harm themselves. You are not setting them up to go on to engage in suicidal behavior or kill themselves, right? So you have to ask. And by asking, right, we can then begin to really find out what that individual needs in terms of support, right? Um, one thing I will say is that um, once you commit to asking, right, you go down and say you're concerned about that person. You're going to get in there and ask that question. Right. You got to be ready to take the next step, which ultimately is going to be getting that person help. Right. If you're that concerned about that person to ask that question, that person needs help. Right. The frontline person is going to be you, right? Expressing your concern, expressing that there you are there to support that person. If you're going to ask that question, right, you're getting in there, you're getting involved with that person, right? And you need to let them know that you are there for them, right? That you are not going to abandon them, that you are there to help them and also get them additional support, right? That's what that person needs in that time, in that moment. So if you ask that question, right, you are there, you are committed to that individual. And I don't wanna put too much pressure on everybody out there, um, but this is where we come in, right? Because <laughs> you, we have my, people like myself in the emergency department, we have psychiatric emergency departments, um, we have other mental health professionals, community support organizations out there that this is what all of these people are there for. So. Right. You, although I'm putting the pressure on you to get involved. Right. And to ask that question. The next step is to get them to the help that they need. Right. Whether it is calling 911, 
and getting that person to the emergency department, right? Where there's somebody always ready and willing to take care of that individual, to look out for them, to make sure that they are safe, whether it is right, getting them to a mental health professional, um, maybe on an outpatient basis. I mean, if you're going to ask that question, though, you know, you got to be ready to get that person to uh, the ER. But maybe they need some additional support. Maybe they'll tell you, no, I'm not thinking about that. Right. Um, but they still need support. And maybe you can get them to their clergy member. If you're in the same church, right, the clergy or getting them that emotional support that they need. Um, there are resources out there in the community that you can access. And now one thing I would say that if, if a person does communicate this to you, that they are thinking about harming themselves, right? We must take them seriously. And as we said, get them help urgently, right? I would even say emergently, meaning call 911, right? And get that person to the hospital as soon as possible. And at that time, avoid debating with them, right? You know, the value of life and, you know, don't give advice in that time. Now is the time you're going to outsource. You're going to, right, get them to a professional um, that will be able to look after that person. You're going to stay with them. This is, this is so crucial, right? You cannot let this person go alone. Um, and even if you have to get them to another person that they know, another loved one, somebody has to stay with this person to make sure that they're safe. So you either it's accompanying them to the emergency department or to that mental health professional or communicating with others that are close to that person so that someone is with that person to make sure that they are safe. And you're gonna keep them free of lethal means. You're gonna remove their meds, firearms, sharp items, knives. Remember, it's important to communicate to them that you're coming from a place of concern, a place of love, right? Um, you're going to listen to that person and you are going to really just express your support in being there and that removing all of these things, right? Whether they're aware of it, which um, can be the case, of course, um, but even if they're unaware, really taking away dangerous things that they might um, use, especially if they communicated the way that they're going to do it. If they, they're going to harm themselves or shoot themselves with their firearm, right? It, it would be best to keep that from that individual. Um, so that they cannot cannot complete that. And really, another resource is reaching out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And that number is as follows. 1-800-273-8255. You can also text TALK, that's capital T-A-L-K, to 741-741. And... Essentially, that'll allow you to to text with a trained crisis counselor from the crisis text line. Right. And so let's say you're out in the in the sticks, some rural area, you can't get to the ER um, as quickly as possible or you can not accompany them or whatever. Right. Whatever barriers keeping you from accessing healthcare is covid outbreak and you guys are scared to go there. Um, you know, understandable. But this is why these crisis lines are so important, because 24 seven. 365 days of year, there are individuals at the crisis line that are there to help in that dire time of need. And so a valuable resource that we really need to to use um, when it comes to suicide prevention. And I also want to point out NYC Well. Uh, this is nycwell.org. 
cityofnewyork.us. That's the website. And this is in New York City, ladies and gentlemen. You can text well, so that's W E L L to the number 65173 in order to access a crisis counselor. You can also call 1 888 NYC well. Um, and you can even just go to their website and chat online with a crisis manager. Um, but that that's that's the thing. There are these resources out there, local resources like NYC Well. And then we have the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, which we gave out that number. And we are going to include these in uh, the show notes, ladies and gentlemen, on the podcast. But some very valuable resources. And I strongly encourage you all out there to to use them. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are going to wrap up here on Health in Harlem. Um, excited about this month, just in raising awareness about this, about suicide prevention. And so I wanted to start off on a good on a good foot um, and getting this information out there. With that said, I want to shout out all of our team on Health in Harlem, Giorgio, um, Reed, Anastasia, um, Michael Holmes, Ashley, Ben Suferi. Um, all of you out there, Mia, just want to shout you guys out. I also want to um, just shout out our staff at WHCR, Angela Hardin, our general manager, Tina Dixon, our production manager, and really all of the DJs that just you know bring great programming to the Harlem community and beyond each and every day, um, especially through the pandemic. Just a shout out to everyone there. Ladies and gentlemen, As always, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlan, take care of yourself.